Here's something interesting. It was 50 years ago this weekend that human beings, for the very first time, stood on solid ground anywhere in the universe other than their home planet. I have a special edition of the podcast for you today with four, count them, four great guests to talk about the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. A little bit later on, we're going to talk with Jeffrey Kluger, Time Magazine writer. We'll talk about the mission of Apollo 8, which laid much of the groundwork for the moon landing and was arguably the most critical mission of the Apollo program. Rod Pyle will be with us, NASA writer, talk about his new book, First on the Moon, a really cool compilation of visual artifacts from the Apollo 11 mission, some of which have never been in print before. Art Harmon of the Coalition to Save Manned Space will talk about inspiring a new generation of scientists to go back to the moon and possibly elsewhere in the universe. And of course, just a moment ago there, you heard the sound of Apollo 11 blasting off July 16th, 1969. I'm Chris Oaks. Welcome to the Here's Something Interesting podcast, where we talk to interesting people with interesting things to say about interesting subjects. It was an eight and a half day mission that would bring to fruition President Kennedy's challenge to send a man to the moon and return him safely back to Earth. And as the NASA of today commemorates that incredible event of the past, scientists are laser focused on the future, which may include a return to the moon and eventually even going on to Mars. Michelle Thaller is assistant director of science for communications at the Goddard Space Flight Center outside of Washington, D.C. And Michelle, as we said, this is a big week of commemoration for you folks at NASA. Talk about how the agency this week has been looking back at what to this point has been mankind's crowning achievement. Hey, yes, good morning. I know it, it's an incredible week for us. So, I mean, 50 years ago to the launch of that amazing Saturn V rocket, you know, so many people watched it around the country, all around the world. And then leading up to Saturday, which is the 50th anniversary of the first time humans stood somewhere other than the Earth. And yeah. so, like you said, Neil Armstrong was that person. So, week full of activities, week full of celebrations. And like you said, also looking forward to how we're going to return to the moon soon and all of the science, all of the exploration that's still left to be done. And this is interesting. I did not know that there are apparently still rock samples that have been sealed since the Apollo missions that NASA will be opening in the next couple of months. Why have they been sealed up to now, and what do you hope to learn when you finally get the chance to examine them? Well, this is incredible foresight, and it's actually something that NASA now does routinely. You know, for example, we're going to be returning uh, a sample from an asteroid later on in a couple of years, and we're going to, put, to take more than half that sample and put it aside and not let people even touch it, even look at it, even open it. And that's what they did 50 years ago on the surface of the moon. There were samples they sealed up then that have never been opened, and the reason they did that is that they knew that people in the, in the distant future, which would be today, 50 years later, mm-hmm. we would have better experiments, we would have better techniques, and we be able to find things out about these rocks that we couldn't have done in the 1970s. And that's exactly what's going on. We're, we're going after these tiny little signals, you know, molecule by molecule, the history of the solar system, the history of water, the building blocks of life. All of those things are still wrapped up in those rocks. And in fact, we are still learning new things about the moon. The lunar orbiter has been up there collecting data for what I guess about 10 years now. What are some of the 
surprising things or some of the things that we are learning that we didn't know even from walking on the surface? That's right. So for the last 10 years, we've had the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter orbiting the moon. And this incredible spacecraft has studied every square inch of the lunar surface. I mean, human beings have only been to six different locations on the moon. We now know every little bump and wiggle and, and every little boulder and pebble on the moon. And we're finding all kinds of amazing things, like the moon is far more complicated than we thought. Uh, near the south pole of the moon, there are these craters where the sun never actually gets to shine down them. They stay cold. And they seem to be accumulating ice under the lunar soil. So if, there, if there's water on the moon, that's really interesting. I mean, there may be water that humans could use for a base the lunar south pole. The whole history of, of the solar system, the moon being a very ancient surface that hasn't been modified the way the Earth's had, mm-hmm. the lunar reconnaissance orbiter has been studying all of that. Uh, that is interesting. You mentioned that uh, obviously humans have uh, reshaped the surface of the Earth uh, in, in numerous ways, and the moon is uh, you know, one of those, I mean, obviously every other planet is, is the same way in our solar system where uh, you know, humans have not touched it uh, for all eternity uh, for the most part, and you can, uh, but this is the one that is obviously closest to us and gives us the opportunity to, to really study and, and un- uh, disturbed surface. Yeah, and it's not just humans. This goes back far beyond that. I mean, I mean, think about it. There's no plate tectonics. There are no oceans. There's no wind. There's no erosion. So you yeah. know, the Earth's surface is continuously changing. The moon's surface really hasn't changed for billions of years. I mean, you can see those craters up there every night. Nothing's changed. So there's a record of how, how many asteroids hit us, about what actually brought the building block blocks of life to the solar system. There, there's, there's all of this stuff that is just waiting up there unmodified for hmm. billions of years. Yeah. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about returning to the moon and eventually going on to Mars, but to do all that, obviously we have to have a way to get there, which NASA doesn't have currently. How are we going to reach these goals uh, that, that the president has set to return to the moon and then go beyond when we haven't even had a vehicle to take humans into low Earth orbit, never mind uh, outer space, for almost a decade. Yeah, well, that would be our new SLS. You know, the, the, we have this new launch system that we're testing right now and the Orion capsule. So one of the things is that we're well on the way to actually having the rocket that we need to getting to the moon. The other thing that's really different this time is the use of commercial partnerships. So if we're going to get to the moon, the plans right now include there being private companies that are going to be providing things like the, the lunar lander, you know, different lunar rovers and experiments. So it's more of a collaborative effort this time. So, you know, we have this, this rocket well under development. It's being tested now. We're hoping to have this ready in a few years, and we're also relying on commercial partnerships, too. So NASA doesn't view the efforts of private exploration companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic as competition, necessarily. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I've been to, uh, uh, geez, I mean, probably about 10 NASA launches in the last couple of years that all went out on uh, SpaceX rockets. Mm-hmm. So SpaceX has become one of the major providers of, of, of NASA mission rockets. What? And uh, there's this, there's really nothing like seeing one of those landings. It's absolutely surreal. When you yeah. see this giant first stage actually coming back and landing next to you on the Earth, it's just amazing. <laughs> so so these, these have actually been long-term collaborations. And in fact, NASA has been purchasing these rockets from companies like SpaceX for quite a while. What do you think? though about those private companies grand plans for space tourism and colonization is there some fear that maybe some of the uh, science has been lost in all of that kind of like akin to putting billboards in the grand canyon 
the goals of the Apollo mission, I mean, the thing that I'm really proud of as a scientist is the incredible science that was returned from that mission. But Apollo was also an exploration mission. You know, the idea is how can you get people to a new place? What are the technologies needed? So, you know, if people are up in space, I'm happy. <laughs> I just want more people exploring the universe, working together. Uh, some of them can have science goals. You know, NASA can lead a lot of the science goals. Hey, if somebody wants to do space tourism, that's going to get people more interested in going to space, more interested in technology, more interested in, in, in science education. Fair so, enough. I mean, to me, it really is a win-win thing. Fair enough. What about the uh, colonization idea? Do you envision a time when we actually have colonies on uh, other planets, on the moon or even on Mars someday? Well, you know, I know a lot of, uh, particularly the, the, the private spaceflight people talk about this, so they want to have a sustained presence on the moon, a sustained presence on Mars. I mean, you, you hear people, you know, like, like the SpaceX people, mm-hmm. Blue Origins, talking about that. Yeah. You know, as, as a scientist, I'm aware of the challenges of having people permanently on a, a place. So, you know, that's going to be something that, you know, the future of humanity has to decide what the priorities are. And, uh, you know, what, what I'm looking forward to is, is just the huge amount of information locked up in these places. You know, the history of the solar system, the, uh, you know, why is Mars so different? Why did Mars lose its ecosystem, its atmosphere, all of that? So, you know, I mean, to me, there's always going to be, give me the science, let, let, let's figure out what we can do now, but let's keep the imagination open, let's keep the grand dreams open, certainly don't discount them. How, how far ahead are those uh, dreams about colonization uh, on uh, other planets on the moon or on Mars or whatever, how far ahead of the science are, are those dreams right now? Well, I mean, I, I, I could not answer when we will have a permanent lunar colony or a permanent Mars colony. I mean, the thing that we're all concentrating right now is get people back. Mm. Get people back to the moon, you know, figure out how we get people safely to Mars. It's a huge challenge. I mean, Mars is so much farther away than the moon. But it's is that the biggest... It's planet, so you, you, can't, you can't just go back anytime you want. Yeah. You have to wait, in some cases, years for the but, time to be right. But is that the, the biggest challenge is getting there, or is the uh, challenge in actually staying there once we uh, get there? I think the answer is both. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a huge challenge to get there. Um, Mars is also an extremely challenged r- radiation environment. It's not protected the way the Earth is. Our atmosphere, the Earth has a, this is wonderful, strong magnetic field that protects us from the sun's radiation. And on Mars, you don't have that protection. And in fact, the sun's wind of particles has actually scraped off all, almost all of Mars' atmosphere over yeah. billions of years. Mm-hmm. So the moon is the same way. You're unprotected from the sun. And so we need to figure out how to keep people safe how to monitor solar activity, what happens when there's a strong solar storm. All that stuff, you've got this great test bed. You know, the moon is, the moon is really easy to get back from. It's right next door. Mm-hmm. So if there's a, some danger, it's much easier to make sure people are safe. But then what we learn from living and working on the moon, we can apply to when people really go further and they can't go back whenever they want. Yeah. Uh, if, if nothing else, we talk about the 50th anniversary, it gets us dreaming about these uh, things, the 50th anniversary of uh, Apollo 11 as this comes up this week. We start thinking uh, about these big, grandiose plans maybe for the future. And as we mentioned, uh, NASA is celebrating this 50th anniversary. And I want to call people's attention to this real quickly. Among the resources you have available to those who are interested is an audio series on the Apollo Explorers. Well, there's so many things. I mean, there's so many documentaries available. One of the ways we're asking people to help us actually be involved in this is we have a website called Apollo Stories. So you go to the website nasa.gov 
slash Apollo Stories, one word. And there you can actually record your own audio recording of your memories of this day. That is awesome. So, you know, what were you doing? What were your parents doing? Talk to them. I mean, if you were too young like me to remember the moon landing, mm-hmm. and these will all be archived forever. I mean, you can actually be part of the history of the moon landing this way. We will. Uh, we have that linked up at our webpage, by the way, at goodmornings.net, so folks can check that out online. Again, uh, Michelle Thaller, Assistant Director of, Sa- of Science for Communications at uh, the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center with us this morning. Michelle, thanks very much for the time. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Tower cleared. We've got a roll program. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and pitch program, which puts Apollo 11 on proper heading. Art Harmon is with us now. He is the head of the Coalition to Save Manned Space, which is online at savemannedspace.org. It is an organization that advocates for continued American leadership in space exploration. And Al, I would imagine that you have got to love this, the fact that really for the first time in a long time, space travel has been at the top of everyone's mind this week. You know, that, that's so true, and it's so wonderful to see. It's, it's great to see kids talking about it and getting excited. So when you look at that question of uh, the future of, of mankind in space, uh, again, as we look back this week, it's only natural that we look forward uh, to, to what, may, what the future may hold. The president has already said that he wants to return to the moon by 2024 and then perhaps yes. on to Mars and, and, and so on. Are, are we finally at the point where the collective will of the nation is to actually do this? Well, I think so, and that's the exciting news. As uh, you know, and, and I think it'll boil down to exactly one point, and that is if the president gets reelected, we will be on the moon by 2024 unless Congress turns into an absolute enemy of the space program and uh, and kills it yet once again. Uh, a future uh, president from the other party uh, will probably kill uh, returning to the moon just like uh, President Obama did and uh, keep us on the track to nowhere. Uh, but President Trump sees not only the strategic value of being on the moon to protect uh, access for all to the moon forever, uh, if China beats us to us, they have already indicated they will claim it just as they're trying to steal the South China Sea. But then also, this is our future in high tech. This is our future in space for all mankind. That's the plaque that uh, uh, was left on the moon. Uh, we came in peace for all mankind. Yeah. You mentioned China's uh, aspirations. Do you feel that we are in Another space race similar to what what we were at the, at the time of uh, Apollo, the Apollo missions uh, in that space race very, with the Russians. Yes, absolutely, very much so. But the stakes are far higher. How in, so? In uh, 1969, the race in the 60s, the race was to get to the moon. It was kind of bragging rights. It was showing, in a way, which society, a slave communist society, or a free. Uh, uh, enterprise, uh, uh, liberty-based society can do it. Uh, freedom and liberty won the day. But this time, it li- the stakes literally are access and control of the moon. Um, I've, I read what the Chinese write internally about the space program and externally. They have 
designs. They're designing a monster military radar to put on the moon. Uh, remember, their space program is not a civilian one. It's it's run by the military mm-hmm. for the purpose of the military. So that space radar would, would be able to map where every military asset is on Earth in essentially real time. Uh, scary. Uh, their base, that they, they, they've already talked about using the language, same language they use for the South China Sea. And mm-hmm. so... There's only a few square miles on the moon that have any value at all. It's not tranquility base. That'll always be a historical uh, monument, I hope. Uh, but it's the South Pole and, to an extent, the North Pole, because there's actually water, ice, on the moon. Mm-hmm. And this is wonderful news that uh, because that means humanity can live there. There's uh, yeah. oxygen, air to breathe. There's water to drink. There's oxygen and hydrogen and water to make rocket fuel with. So this is where future cities on the moon will be. We were just talking with the uh, folks at, the, uh, at NASA, and we asked that question about uh, colonization uh, of, the, of the moon. You actually see that in our future? You think that's, that's going to happen in the near future? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, be- because the moon is where we're going to live, learn to live on Mars. Before mm-hmm. we go on a thousand-day journey to Mars, we're going to um, we're going to want to know how people will survive on another world. Test out the habitats mm-hmm. where it's only three days to home if there's an emergency. Right. But that actually leads to the other question that we were uh, posing of the uh, folks at NASA, and I want to uh, throw this out to you uh, as well. Are you concerned at all that these ideas of of colonization uh, and and space tourism and and all of those types of things that sometimes maybe the science gets lost in all of that? Well, that that's a fascinating question. Uh, there's two very separate elements: exploration and the science, mm-hmm. and that's what we did with Apollo, and this is where really uh, you know a NASA type program is the uh, kind of the only way to do it, because there's really no profit in mm-hmm. exploration. So NASA goes there, and then that retires the risk. It buys down the risk for uh, commercial enterprises who will be doing everything from tourism to the moon mm-hmm. to uh, to factories. And with respect to that, you talked about the uh, America's future in space uh, really hinging uh, largely on Congress's support, but obviously the dynamic is much different now because you have those private investments in space. So how critical is congressional support when there uh, it seems like the uh, the race back into space is being led by these private companies like SpaceX. I, I guess the the question really is, will all of this happen regardless of Congress? Does this happen anyway because of those private investments? It would happen a lot slower. And what would happen is uh, China will be on the moon, on the South Pole, mm. with a base that they'll start building. Yeah. The only difference is whether who will basically lead the high-tech uh, world for the next generation or the next century, the U.S. and the free nations or China and, and the totalitarian ones. Yeah. So if, if mm. we're absent from the game, uh, others will, 
but it may not be for the benefit of all mankind. Uh, going back to the whole uh, space race question, I, again, all of this yes. uh, all of this precipitated by the 50th anniversary of uh, the Apollo 11 mission. That's why all of this is so top of mind. Let me ask you with respect to that 50th anniversary, what sticks out in your mind as you look back uh, to this week in 1969, what is that lasting, enduring memory for you? We've got to really admit our national uh, priorities. Fifty years ago, literally half a century, uh, you know, we knew how to go to the moon then. We could go any time we want, but we've lacked the political will to maintain our leadership in that. Mm-hmm. And I hope many, many who are... Uh, Watching the um, you know the reruns and the movies mm-hmm. about uh, the landing uh, will be uh, you know excited to say I want to do this. Hey, yeah. I'll go work for SpaceX or I'll yeah. go work for NASA or uh, Elon uh, Musk and and so forth and and make that their career. Inspiring a new generation, much the way the Apollo 11 mission did 50 years ago. Amen. Uh, yeah. uh, we will leave it there. Art Harmon again, the Coalition to Save Manned Space. You are online. More information, more reflection, and more of what's going on in space exploration today at your website, right? Absolutely. SaveManedSpace.com, manned, M-A-N-N-E-D, and also SaveManedSpace on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Give us a shout. Art, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Chris, always a great pleasure to be on, and uh, look forward to the next time. 40 feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust. Four forward, drifting to the right a little. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That is NASA audio as the lunar module touches down on the surface of the moon 50 years ago, July 20th, 1969. And in honor of this milestone anniversary of that historic event, Rod Pyle has written a new book. He is a writer for the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory and has written extensively on the U.S. space program. This book was put together in conjunction with the National Space Society. It is called First on the Moon. It is an illustrated book, a a coffee table book with lots of photographs, diagrams, illustrations, mission control notes, and so on. Some of which people may have seen, much of which they likely haven't. Rod, talk about the process of putting this book, this this collection together. So I knew with the anniversary coming up, I, I had written a couple of Apollo books, but I thought I have to write another one. For two reasons. One, I just wanted that to be a part of my experience for the anniversary. Yeah. But two, I wanted to tell the story a little differently than I had before, and then it usually is done, which is for coffee table books, it's usually a chronological march, march through the mission, which is a fine approach. And I'd done that for TV documentaries I did for History Channel and so forth as well. But in this case, I wanted to pick vignettes of let's look at what it took to ramp up to this thing. Let's mm-hmm. look at the astronauts and who they are. Let's look at the kids, the astronauts, and their experience. Let's look at what it took to design just the engines for the first stage of the Saturn V, which were this huge challenge by themselves, all these components that it took to get us to the moon and back. Mm -hmm. So that was really the approach. And, of course, the fun part 
is going to the archives and crawling around your hands and knees and dragging <laughs> stuff off the dusty shelves uh, and all that. I would we imagine. don't have to do that as much as we used to because a lot of it's online, but it's just a blast to do a book like this. Yeah. You know, what this book uh, reiterates, what has always been fascinating to me, and this book reiterates, is just the amazing accomplishment of what we did with the kind of technology that we had in the 1960s. I mean, it's mind-boggling today. Imagine 50 years ago. I actually find the further I get from that date in 1969, the more astonished I am that it worked. Yeah. I remember being amazed then, but I look back now, this is the 1960s. It's 1950s aerospace technology being perfected for use in the 1960s. We had just stopped using vacuum tubes for electronics and had graduated to transistors and radios. Mm -hmm. And we've got this computer driving these spacecraft through space to the moon and back that's about powerful enough to run your microwave today. Yeah. So the elegance of the engineering and the programming and the science behind this still takes my breath away to this day. Now, we did spend a lot of money, about 5% of the federal budget, doing it up through the mid-1960s. Mm. But we did it. Yeah. And the Soviet Union tried and failed. And it does say something about what an incredible effort and uniting of the workforce that it was. Some 400,000 people uh, were involved in some way, shape, or form. And that's the other uh, amazing thing. It's just hard to imagine that number of people singularly being focused on a mission today. Well, you, you know, you interview the folks in that era, whether they were engineers or senior management or janitors or whatever, and they remember this like combat veterans remember combat. They remember this really devoted time where they were, their lives were consumed by this project that was more important than anything. And this is, as you said, 400,000 people. Today it's a little different. There's a lot of private companies involved mm -hmm. uh, in ways that they weren't then, putting their own money into the effort. But i got to tell you, spending time at Jeff Propulsion Laboratory at the end of the National Field Centers, I worked at Johnson for a while, in Houston, and spending time at companies like SpaceX, those people are incredibly driven and motivated and passionate in a slightly different way. They remember Apollo. They remember that we've done this before. And they want to do it again, but they want to do it faster and cheaper and more effectively. So I think it's a very different approach, but it's resulting in the same thing, which is this very impassioned and dedicated workforce that really just wants to see this happen again. You know, it's interesting you bring that up. And and again, here we are, the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing, and there is talk of returning to the moon, uh, going beyond that to Mars. But uh, interestingly, it doesn't seem like there is the same passion for that uh, as there was 50 years ago. And obviously, 50 years ago, we had not done it. It was something, you know, uh, totally new. But uh, you mentioned the uh, the dynamic now with so many uh, private companies and, and talking about uh, space development and space tourism and all of that. Compare and contrast what you see now with what you saw then. Is it the same? It, it, it is different. Um, public support is roughly the same as it was in the 1960s. Of that's course, another it went thing. up and down a lot. Yeah, Apollo that's another thing people don't realize. Up. Yeah, there's this idea that we were a nation united behind this effort. That's really not the case. There was a lot of dissension. There was a lot of pushback. Public support was inconsistent. Congressional support was certainly inconsistent. And it's very possible that had Kennedy not been assassinated, 
this mission to the moon might not have been completed because hmm. after that assassination under Lyndon Johnson, this became a political hot potato. You didn't yeah. touch Apollo. Right. The martyred president's vision. Now we're going back for profit. We're going back to mine the resources of the moon. So it's, it's a different program, different motivations, but using improvements of that same basic technology that would develop so long ago. Is there a benefit to going back to the moon? Because I, I was just uh, not all that long ago saw a study or survey uh, of Americans who, who said that, uh, you know, maybe the manned space flight is not the future of space exploration. Maybe it's robotics and, you know, unmanned space probes and, and things like that. So that, that argument's been raging since we started this in 1950s, 1960s, yeah. and there is no satisfactory answer. I mean, robot, robots will always go first in the dark and frightening places. They will always go to explore and reconnoiter. And I think increasingly, because of AI and other capabilities, will go to develop the initial infrastructures needed for people to follow. But both on the philosophical side of the feeling that people get when a human being reports back firsthand where they've been. Mm -hmm. And from a practical aspect, human beings are just far better at adapting and overcoming these challenges than machines are. They work faster, they work smarter, and most importantly, they work intuitively. So I think there's always a role for people in spaceflight and eventually settling uh, areas of space. And it's really good for the economy. These big programs send all that money spent in the U.S. It's spent on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, it's spent on in, into the U.S. economy. And it's a tremendous boost for both industry and education in, in the science and technology fields, which yeah. is something we really need right now. You know, uh, you mentioned that obviously when we first went to the moon, it was a space race. We were kind of uh, motivated and pushed forward by this uh, race with the Russians. Now you've got, uh, for example, China uh, who is looking to go to the moon. Is there another space race brewing? Can it uh, can that motivate us to, to do some of this, the, these grand plans that we've long talked about and not really done? I think there is another, there's certainly a space age here. Whether it'll be a race remains to be seen. When when Mike Pence, vice president, got up and said we're going back to the moon by 2024 a few weeks ago, he did cite Russia and China as our adversaries, potential adversaries in this. Mm -hmm. There is some Ron, truth to that for taking the time. We appreciate side, it. On the civilian side. Thank you. Take I'm a care. little less convinced. I mean, definitely China's going to the moon. They're sending robots. They intend to send people. And they can plan 10 years in advance because they have a president for life. So they've got a much more convenient system for supporting <laughs> that's, that. That's true. In the U.S., on the other hand, we have a commercial sector that is more robust with these Internet billionaires building companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin that do not exist overseas, at least not yet. Mm. So that's a tremendous advantage. So how this will play out remains to be seen. It's going to be tricky. Again, Rod Pyle is author of First on the Moon, the Apollo 11 50th Anniversary Experience. Real quickly, do you have a website in conjunction with this book? Uh, folks can learn more about it. Yeah, I do. It's uh, pilebooks.com. That's P-Y-L-E books.com. And everything I've got is posted up there and described. Um, uh, at the foot of the ladder, the surface appears to be very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man. One giant leap.
There they are, Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon, considered the crowning achievement of mankind to this point. And we've been talking about the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. I want to step back a couple of missions here because that achievement might never have happened but for the crew of Apollo 8. Now, Jeffrey Kluger was a senior writer and science editor at Time Magazine for more than two decades. He is perhaps best known to many as the author of the book Lost Moon with Jim Lovell. That is the book that Apollo 13, the movie, was based on. Now, a couple of years ago, he wrote a book called Apollo 8, the thrilling story of the first mission to the moon. Now, the two things that everyone remembers, if you're old enough or everyone knows that came from Apollo 8 are those incredible photos of the Earth rise from the perspective of the moon, something that human beings had never seen before. And the Christmas Eve reading from the book of Genesis from space. Now, these were two very powerful moments, to be sure. But, Jeffrey, those don't even begin to tell the story of this mission. The story of this mission, as I like to think of it, is a story of serendipity and of just flat-out courage and vision. Um, you know, the the mission is set in 1968, which was one of the darkest and bloodiest years in modern human history. Sure. There were assassinations in the U.S., riots, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, to say nothing of the Vietnam War. Um, just the year before... The Apollo 1 astronauts had died in a launch pad fire, effectively bringing the entire space program to a halt. So here we are then in the summer of 68. No human beings, no Americans have flown in space for close to two years. We're just 16 months away from President Kennedy's deadline to have Americans on the surface of the moon by the end of the 1960s. And in that summer, with the space program dead in the water, a handful of guys at NASA said, you know what, if we do this right, if we fix our hardware, if we train up our guys, we can have three guys in lunar orbit in 16 weeks. Yeah. Never mind 16 months, 16 weeks. Yeah. And by the way, it will happen on Christmas Eve. And yeah. they did it. And that's a, a lot of ifs there at the time. And you established, mm-hmm. you established right from the outset that this entire mission was a huge gamble. I mean, NASA was nowhere near ready to do this in the summer of 68. They weren't. And one thing they knew right away is they weren't going to land. The lunar module that had to right. carry astronauts down from, from lunar orbit down to the surface, that wasn't going to be ready for at least another six months. They, were, they accepted that. But they could, if they fixed the Saturn V rocket, which was no small thing since the previous time it had flown unmanned, it had nearly shaken itself to pieces and it would have likely killed its crew if anyone had been aboard. The command module was still being rebuilt and redesigned and perfected after the Apollo 1 fire. So that was no small thing. But they knew if we can get out there and get these guys into orbit, this will be the pivotal moment. The yeah. landing will be great. That'll, that's when our touchdown dance can come, if that's what we want. But this is really the 95 march, yard march down the field. Yeah. This is when we get people into lunar orbit, when we become a species, not of one world, but a species of two worlds, when human eyes will see the far side of the moon for the first time, yeah. when human eyes will see the Earth hanging whole in space, 
for the first time. And you've That's gotta, what this mission did. And you've got to admire that big picture thinking. But on the flip side, would it be fair to say that had something gone wrong, had these astronauts gotten stuck in space, uh, not been able to get home, or if something unanticipated had happened, that that could have been the end of the Apollo program and perhaps even NASA as we know it? Well, I because think I can that imagine existed because the, I can imagine there were a what lot the, of no, Go I was going to say sorry. no, I was going to say I can imagine what the scandal would be if it came out that this that they were you know tore up their you know well laid out plans of we're going to do this and this and this and this and and jumped ahead four or five steps here. Well, that's right, and that's why <clears throat> the fact that um, I've been able to get a hold of some of this history and some of these conversations that took place in the back rooms um, <clears throat> was is such a, a, a terrific asset because yeah. we can see what kind of chance they were taking. And yeah. you're right. If they had gotten stuck, if they had died, uh, there were enough people that were calling for the whole space pro- program to be shut down after the Apollo 1 fire. If it happened yet again to another crew, right. that would have been much worse. And the fear this time was, as you suggested, it wasn't dying, or it wasn't dying right away. It was getting stuck, getting stuck in lunar orbit, because they would have perished soon enough. Their oxygen would have run out, but their spacecraft never would have crashed. They would have orbited the moon. They'd still be orbiting now, and as one of the wives said, we could ruin the moon for everybody, because no one will ever be able to look at it and not think of the three guys. And what did those three guys, and Jim Lovell, by the way, was one of them, them, uh, who obviously mm-hmm. uh, folks know now very famously from from Apollo 13. Well, what did they think of this mission? And again, the very real possibility that maybe they don't come home. I mean, they they knew how uh, NASA was really pushing up this timetable. They did. They did. And the thing about astronauts, there's a couple things. Um, First of all, astronauts in some ways are like firefighters or police officers or combat soldiers. They know that the mere act of going to the office in the morning can kill them. And they accept that risk, which is one of the reasons they're who who they are and the rest of us are who we are. Um, But the other side of it was that they couldn't be impervious to the numbers, or at least they, they, many of them couldn't be. Lovell actually did a fairly good job of simply ignoring what the odds were. He was never so happy as when he was in space, and yeah. he was never so happy in space as when he was doing something crazy like flying to the moon. So he was happy. Borman was similarly... Uh, similarly tried to inure himself to the numbers, but his wife, Susan, who's a very tough and very candid woman, um, buttonholed the director of flight operations <laughs> not long before they left and said to him, look, you got to tell me what these odds are. And uh, this guy is Chris Kraft, and he said back to her, you really want to know that, don't you? And she <laughs> said, I do. And he said, all right, how's 50-50? And those were the numbers she had to live with. Wow. One of the most intriguing parts of the book as well is not just just what happens within NASA and within you know the the mindset and the the frame of mind of the astronauts and and the men who put this mission together, but you also talk about the conversations inside the Soviet Union as all of this was unfolding. 
Uh, that's right. There's a wonderful series of books by a gentleman named Boris Chertok, who was one of the Soviet engineers, um, who wrote a very dense uh, four-volume series called Rockets and Men um, about the Soviet space program. And he wrote candidly about what was going on inside uh, Roscosmos headquarters then, their NASA. Uh, he said they watched the liftoff. And there's a moment, if you've ever seen a Saturn V rocket lift off, when the first stage separates, and it looks briefly like the rocket has blown up mm-hmm. because the, that's, this big white flare comes out, and then you see quickly that it hasn't. And the men in that room were watching that rocket go up. That moment hit, and they all caught their breath, and they had two conflicting feelings. On the one hand, they could not lie to themselves that there was a part of them that wanted it to blow because that would have kept them in the game. Right. And the other half was they were abiding by the missile man's credo, which is you never wish ill on the other guy's rocket, especially when it's carrying human beings. So when Apollo 8 sped on, they knew two things. They knew that the good thing had happened. The machine and the men had survived but that they had all but surely lost the space race. Mm. It is amazing. And uh, again, Apollo 8, other than those two things that we remember, the reading from uh, Genesis and the incredible photos that human beings had never seen before, uh, it's almost like a, a forgotten mission in the in the sense that you have the Apollo 13, obviously, which uh, folks know Apollo 11, the moon landing. But this, none of that would have happened were it not for this. And, and it's just a, an incredible story. Apollo 8, the thrilling story of the first mission to the moon, Jeffrey Kluger is the author. Do you have a website where folks can learn more about the book? Yeah, it's just straightforwardly jeffreykluger.com, and it links to Amazon and to Apple and to Barnes & Noble and all the good ways to get the book. Hope you've enjoyed our special podcast today, looking back at the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. It is still just boggles my mind and and is incredible to think that we actually did that. We stood on solid ground somewhere in the universe other than planet Earth, and it happened 50 years ago this week. If you find this topic interesting, we can discuss it on the Here's Something Interesting Facebook page at Something Interesting Podcast. Hope to meet up with you there. I'm Chris Oaks, and if you enjoyed the Here's Something Interesting Podcast, be sure to subscribe, like our Facebook page, and share it with your friends that might find this stuff interesting as well. Thanks for listening. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind.